Either Schwitzer? Oh, yeah, it's the guy I listened to when I made my first billion. He's one clever son of a... Five, four... We're online. The hottest internet station. It's time for The Switzer Show with the guy who makes getting richer easier than running up a credit card bill, Peter Switzer. Well, hello and welcome to The Switzer Show. I'm Peter Switzer and uh, my next guest on the program, well, in fact, is my first guest, um, sold half of his business called Four Pillars Gin to line Nathan in a not too distant uh, past. And industry experts say this could be worth about 30 to $50 million, but what would industry experts know? That owner is Stu Gregor. He joins me on The Switzer Show. Hi, Stu. I'm good, thanks, Twitter. What would industry experts know? Really, I couldn't agree with you any more than that. <laughs> of course, you've been an industry expert as well. So <laughs> it's going to be great to catch up to uh, explain to my listeners how the Four Pillars story um, evolved. I should say to everybody, I've known Stuart since he was about 15. I taught him at Sydney Grammar School and uh, – he was arguably, you know, one of the smartest students I ever taught, but also one of the biggest smart-ass students I ever taught. <laughs> and he's taken this skill of his and created a fantastic business reputation, I think, first of all, but then a fantastic business as well. So it's a great pleasure to have you on the program, Stu. Mate, it was um, – look, every, I, I've said this before publicly, and I'll say it again. Everything I've achieved, moderate. Moderate as it is, or modest as it is, I owe to my year 11 economics teacher, Peter mm-hmm. Switzer, for putting me on a path of righteousness and understanding what a profit and loss statement was and a balance sheet and a, and a general ledger. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. But, um, no, but it's, the Portfellas has gone great. And I'm actually, we, we just opened in Sydney just not, not three weeks ago, just in the early part of June. I mean, who wouldn't want to open a hospitality venue and bar in the middle of this COVID nineteen crisis? It seems a logical thing to do, but <laughs> um, but we're, we're having a we're having a pretty good time of it. And yeah, we've um, we've built a business that really we established only seven years ago in the Yarra Valley. We were making we were making gin out the back of a mate's winery um, in Warrandyte, which if if anyone is listening is from Melbourne knows that only a real estate agent could call Warrandyte the Yarra Valley. It really is just the outer suburbs of Melbourne. And if you stood on top of one of the tanks, you could see the Yarra Valley. But um, we started making gin there in, at right at the end of 2013. And um, interesting, just to give you a sense of how many what what's going on in the gin industry in Australia. When we started, we reckon there were 10 people, 10 distilleries seriously making gin in Australia, and we reckon now there's more than 200. So we were lucky, and I think we got in right at the at the at the at the, at the crest of the, at the at the start of the wave, mm. I suppose, of, of of this gin boom that is not just happening in Australia but all over the world. And um, yeah, we've positioned ourselves pretty well, pretty well now. But there's a lot to do. Most yeah. of us have lost a lot of customers in the last three months. We've got a lot of a lot of business to make up mm. um, from you know March onwards. So, Stu, uh, let me sort of sketch your history because. You know, as some some great business builders have said, that it took something like twenty years to be an overnight success because it it sounds like an overnight success with you know four pillars. But you've you've been in the industry for a long time, um, and I guess you could take me back how long? Because 
uh, at the start of your um, introduction to the the wine and, and liquor industry, just ahead of it, yeah. you were a long-haired, scary person in West, in Westminster <laughs> Abbey. In Westminster Abbey, I yeah. knew that was going to come up. <laughs> well, because we, guys, we yeah, I should explain explain to everybody what I'm talking about. I was, um, yeah. So in early in, in the early nineties, so having left left school in the late eighties, I became a journalist actually, and I spent five years at News Corp, um, writing everything from um, from sports to politics to music and and everything in between, and then decided to. Um, yeah, do the backpack thing around around Europe, and I was actually walking. I was I was destitute. <laughs> I was literally skint, walking through um, Westminster Abbey as a as a as a backpacker in in, in the early nineties, probably in my early twenties. Mm. And lo and behold, would I see my former economics teacher and his family on their you know Griswold family <laughs> tour of Europe? Yeah, and they took. And I did. I had a, I had a, a jacket, that, a long jacket that I had bought from like an op shop for five. Yeah, an army jacket, over like and, a great and coat. An army jacket. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they took pity on me, and I still remember you took me to Planet Hollywood for lunch. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah. I was, but yeah, that started. I guess I, I guess that actual trip. I ended up living in France for a while then because I thought that I might want to want to be a, a chef or a cook. But I discovered wine. Actually, I was living just out of a, a little town called Chablis, where they make very famous white wine. Mm. Um, and I soon sort of met some, some people in the wine industry, and that's where I, 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 I actually of all the bizarre places I found out in Burgundy, which is where Chablis is, that I could I could go back to Australia and study at a, at a, at a at Roseworthy College, which is now part of the University of Adelaide. It's a, it's a famous old agricultural college where everyone learned how to make wine or do wine business and wine marketing. Um, right back from the from the fifties, all of the great Australian winemakers all went through Roseworthy, and I thought, well, that's a great idea. I can move to the Barossa and and learn about the wine industry. And I and I actually I was lucky enough to get in, and I, I, I soon realised after, after I'd been there for six weeks, it wasn't even remotely difficult to get in. Um, I thought I'd achieved something enormous by by getting in, but basically they took pretty much anyone. Um, and yeah, I started learning a bit about wine and a bit about the business side of wine, and and I used my journalism skills a little bit, I suppose. And then um, for the next for ten years after I left Roseworthy, I, I lived in Melbourne where I was working for uh, some big wineries, the you know, Mildara Black. So that's now become Treasury Wine Estate, essentially, so the biggest wine business in the country. Where I was effectively their PR manager, I suppose, doing wine education and teaching the sales reps and the, and the customers about all of the, about all of the wines. So I was still writing about wine, wrote half a dozen wine guides and then set up my own business, which was Liquid Ideas, which was basically just giving advice to wineries and breweries and subsequently travel companies and hospitality venues um, about how to you know, promote themselves. You know, I have, I've always had a, I, I don't think it would be unfair to say, Peter, that I've had a, um, I've had a fairly, you know, um, uh, I've had a reasonable crack at talking underwater. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm, uh, mm-hmm. I've, I've always had a good, a good way, I suppose, of promoting promoting both myself and my clients. So um, that 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 was a business that still exists today, and that's, in, my, in, my in, wife's now heavily involved in that business. In fact, I was talking to one of the the, the most famous wine experts in the country who will not be named, uh, who I told I was going to be interviewing you today, and he said, um, great bloke, but you never, ever want to share a stage with him because he eats the microphone. So the poor person has had to share a stage with you at some point in his life and probably walked off the stage and say, did anyone know I was there? Anyway, yeah. <laughs> anyway but uh, you, you sped through a part of the story I want to 
actually focus on? Because when you're at that college, you actually met someone who was actually, I think, very uh, instrumental in helping you be even better at business than you would have been without her. So why don't you tell us that story as well? <laughs> I suspect you're talking about my wife. Oh, um, well, no, well, two, well I, I think you've had two women because I think, you know, your wife Polly is a, has been very important because, you, you know, you would have been basically a drunk who had a business. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah. So Polly's certainly made Sally. sure. <laughs> Sally, sorry. Polly. It was one of your ex-girlfriends, wasn't it, Polly? It uh, is one of my ex-girlfriends. <laughs> yeah, my memory goes back too far. Yes. Sally will kill me, but but going yeah. You know, so Sally's always been a bit like more in in my life. You know that, that, that kind of anchor, that foundation that has made yeah. what you're capable of doing you know, come to fruition. But but also you had a business partner who used yeah. to work at McDonald's uh, as a as a young woman, and and she was also great to bring discipline and systems into the crazy world of Stuart Gregor. Yeah, look, Angie, so it's Angie Bradbury, who mm. I founded Liquid Ideas with. Um, we actually met when we were both doing our masters together. So we were doing a master's of marketing at the, at the Melbourne Business School. Yeah, okay. And I would, um, she's a, uh, she's a, a dynamo. She's currently the chair of uh, Wine Victoria. She's been running a, 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 an incredible business called Dig and Fish up until just recently, and is probably going to sit on a few boards and probably consult to, to a bunch of businesses. And yeah, look, Angie was, um, she she had she'd been to McDonald's she'd been she was then working for Spotless at the time for Ron Evans' uh, incredible business Spotless that was at the time you know it still is we have ruling a lot of hospitality and 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 business across Victoria very big business in Melbourne um, and and you know I, I always say that you know I, I would never have got where I am today without either of them without either Angie or Sally but Angie in particular from a business perspective helped us create Liquid Ideas which was a an idea of mine, you know, I was always good at the big picture and the ideas and the, and the talk and all that sort of stuff, but someone who could come in and actually structure and, and frame a, a, a real business was, was my only hope of survival and, and success. And yeah, look, Angie uh, has been a huge part of my, my, you know, modest success, I suppose. And she, you know, for 10 years, we were working closely together. I mean, we, we had a, a reunion for 20 years of liquid ideas only in February, just, Literally the week or two before um, before Victoria got shut down, like uh, it was actually the, the the last week of February, we all had a drink with some of our great ex employees, and and you know the great thing is that Liquid Ideas has started so many careers in either in the wine industry or beer industry or, or, or corporate communications. Um, you know, we've got such a great alumni of, of people who come through that, including, funnily enough, two of the senior people at Lion. So that may have helped me get my. Um, they may have finally paid me back. Um, that may have helped us get our deal through um, in in March last year. So, yeah, I mean, anyone who wants to start a business, make sure you surround yourself with people who are smarter than you. I mean, it's a bit of a cliche, but it's Jesus true. Cares. That's absolutely true. Yeah. But you also at that time, both you and Angie, luckily bumped into a lady by the name of Leslie Ann Grimaldi, uh, who was your business coach, who later became yep. my business coach, and. Uh, that was an important part to have those, that objective set of eyes from someone like uh, Leslie Ann, wasn't it? Well, it's important because if you remember that she was she was a business coach, but she'd actually run a business that was not dissimilar to the one we'd set up. So, God, we were lucky. Yeah. I mean, mm. I think sometimes in business you make your own luck, but that, but sometimes you are just kissed, kissed by an angel. And I think one of the 
someone I literally just did a, came up to just doing a little interview about uh, half an hour ago, and someone said, "Doc, how did you get so lucky to open this bar the week that bars reopened in New South Wales?" And I said, "Frankly, I would love to tell you that that was some kind of um, genius, but that was just sheer." Unadulterated good fortune, and I think with, with Leslie Ann, if we go back into the you know back into the vault, you know, twenty plus years ago, she was not only an outstanding business coach, but she'd actually been in a business that was marketing and PR for mm. wine companies. So we had the we had the added advantage of having a business coach who not only um, knew a lot about how to get a startup business going. Um, but she also knew the categories that, that we were directly involved in. And you know what? She helped us get them quiet too. I'm absolutely certain of that. So, mm. um, you know, it, it, it is, you know, the business journey is there's an enormous number of people along the way who do, who do incredible things to help you out. And I think it's really important never to forget that. It's um, sometimes, you know, you, you said there yourself that, you know, an overnight sensation is 20 years in the making. It is. And I think, I think anyone in, in, in business or in any other endeavour in life, you know, you need to always step back. When people are just busy patting you on the shoulder and telling you you've made heaps of money or whatever else it might be, that there's, there, were, there were lots of turns and twists where you might have gone the wrong direction, but there was somebody smarter than you who pulled you back into line and, and, and straightened you up and got you heading back in the right direction. And I think that's, you know, never, never, never forget that you're, you're, you know, only, you know, but but for the good grace of others, mm. you are where you are today. Um, uh, Stuart, that's some about pe- as philosophical as I'll ever be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. Well, I'm glad I'm interviewing interviewing you early in the day. But yeah, as I say, some yeah. some people might have thought you you know drunk your way to business success, and you have, but but you also had, as you pointed out, very good people around you. Uh, when you were with the business coach, you know, um, you know, you had someone like Angie who would actually do the homework for you, uh, and you've always done that. Even when you were a school student, you always had people <laughs> helping you do your homework. But, but the same thing, you're driven and you're focused, and that was a very important uh, ingredient to, to your success because it hasn't always been flying high, has it? No, no. I mean, there are times, you know, when when you've, you've thought, you know, there are times in any small business, particularly in that first, I don't know, five to seven years when you think you might go under. You know, you really don't think, you know, you don't pay yourself. Um, you're, you're scratching around trying to find any, you know, any bit of business that you can do. You'll literally take any client, you know, and, and you may have entered the business with some ideals about the sorts of people you'll work with and the, and the types of work you'll do. Um you throw a lot of that out of the window just to survive, you know. It's um, and it's even 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 now as we have reset our business here, you know, twenty years on, you know, none of us could have predicted that we would lose forty percent of our business overnight. I mean, the fastest growing part of our popular business was global travel retail, which is a duty free market. Yeah, yeah. And, and in 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 in, in, in January this year, we were looking at having the you know uh, the most incredible year in duty free. Uh, not just in Australia, we were expanding to Changi and to Hong Kong Airport, and you know we were we were planning to get into Heathrow and all the all the international airports where spirit buying is a really big part of, of, mm. of the airport experience. That is now currently sitting at zero, and mm. that would have been twenty percent of our business uh, had we gone on as we were in January this year. Um, so you know we got to find somewhere else to replace that twenty percent of, of the business, and you know, and it's not all going to be six weeks of hand sanitizer sales, and and you can't make it all up through Dan Murphy. So 
you know, we've had to make some really tough decisions in the last, uh, even in the last six weeks about how can we get all of our budget back down? How can we get all of our costs back down? Um, you know, we've been retooling this business almost weekly during COVID, as has everyone in every industry. I mean, it's, it's funny because I also, you know, I own half a travel business with my sister and even when, even the worst of times in our gin business at the moment, it's not even remotely as cl- close to how bad the travel industry is at the moment. I mean, it's, it's been decimated and, you know, they can't. And, you know, even though Alan Joyce was speaking the truth last week when he said, you know, Qantas don't really expect to be flying in any reasonable amount until July next year, that's just, that is a dagger through a, a travel agent who's trying desperately to convince people that they should book trips in, you know, May next year. Mm. Um, so it's a really, no matter, you know, there's always, in life, I think there's always someone doing a bit better than you and there's always someone doing a little bit harder than you and there's plenty of people who are doing it tougher than, than us right now. Yep. And uh, I feel just for tourism and travel and hospitality. I mean, you know, we've got so many mates who still aren't reopening their restaurants and bars and we just hope, you know, you don't know what's going on in the background, but hopefully they've got reasonable landlords and hopefully they haven't lost all of their staff. And, uh, you know, I, I just hope a lot of those great venues are going to reopen, mm. you know, because we need them. But the culture needs them. You know, we need them. As, you know, we, you don't want to live in a city where there's not many good bars and fun restaurants. I mean, I was talking to New York um, and they're talking about a third of all bars in New York never reopening. Gee. I mean, that, that's a... That's, that's, New York's not going to feel like New York without all of those bars mm. on every corner. That's that's its DNA. So uh, you know, there's a lot of people. Uh, uh, I don't think anyone quite realises where we're going to end up coming out of this. But I think a lot of the a lot of our industries or a lot of the industries that we love are, are going to look very different in a year's time than they than they did in March. Stewie, um, take me back to when you first went into making wine. I think. We actually had a, a, a restaurant meal in uh, one of the laneways of Melbourne when you started. Was it Donnie Mac was your first foray into <laughs> making stuff? And it's, that's was, part it was, of your name, isn't it? Yeah, well, it's Donnie Good Mac. So oh. it was Donnie, which is me, because I'm Donald, Stu, uh, Donald Stewart Gregor. Good was Kate Goodman, who was, a, who, who, who was and he is a, an incredibly talented winemaker. Um, and Mac was Cameron McKenzie. And he's actually ended up being the guy that I'm in business at Four Pillars with, mm. along with um, Matt Jones, who's our third co-founder. But, um, yeah, we started with Donnie Goodmack because one of the things that I think has driven the, maybe the success of Four Pillars, but also me, me personally, is that I've never always just wanted to be the guy watching other people do things, you know, and it was whilst we were always <clears throat> at that stage, I'd um, worked for a few wine businesses and, you know, was had done had written some books and judged some wine shows. I'd never actually owned my own wine label, if you like. You know, where I got to play a part in what we actually released. And and while Kate was the winemaker per se, at least I was able to get involved in the in the in the in the blending and the tasting and what it should look like. And that was a really important thing for us because we started that. Um, I vividly remember we picked the first fruit for that exactly one week before I got married in two thousand and two. And we picked the wrong, I shouldn't ever be admitting this, but these are the mistakes you make that you can laugh about 20 years later. It was 2002. We actually picked the fruit on April the 13th. That was two weeks before my wedding. And we thought we were picking Shiraz off a of Mate's Vineyard. Turned out we were picking a different grape variety entirely called Cabernet Franc. Um, <clears throat> when we bottled it as Shiraz, we always thought it tasted a bit strange. <laughs> <And> <laughs> it, was only, it was only later when we asked him, you know, we picked Rose 
four, five, and six, or whatever the numbers were. And he said, what, why, why did you pick them? You were meant to pick eight, nine, and ten, or whatever, because this mate of ours had allowed us to pick some fruit in, in his vineyard. Yeah. And we said, oh, well, they were the ones that were closest to the road, or, you know, <laughs> or our buckets. Some or stupid <laughs> analysis, yeah. <laughs> so, and he said, yeah, but that wasn't Shiraz, mate. That was Cabernet Franc. And we went, ah, oh, that's it. <laughs> that's why it didn't taste like Shiraz. So we made a few mistakes, but we had such a good time making that wine for five or six years, and it led us. It did a couple of things because then we, uh, uh, Cameron and I, went on with with another mate of ours and, and started making some wine called the Dirty Three, which was based on three of us. A guy called Marcus Satchel, who is currently making the very best wines in South Gippsland. So down on the way to Phillip Island, mm. it's still called Dirty Three, and their wines are as good as anything coming out of Victoria right now. So if anyone wants a tip into a hot new wine label, they should get a little bit of Dirty Three. Mm. Um, and then that was the last step before we, we, we left into Four Pillars. And the things that we realised that we needed to do was, again, we needed to surround ourselves with smarter people, and that's where Matt Jones came in, because while Cameron was going to be great on the production, and I was probably going to be great on the talk and the chat and the PR and, and all that, that sort of thing. We still needed someone to pull it all together, a bit like an Angie Bradbury back from, you know, 2000. And, mm. and Matt's the guy who was able to, you know, give our idea some structure, you know, build some scaffolding around our, you know, our, our, our ideas of what we could do with gin and what we could do with, um, you know, building a beautiful distillery in the Yarra Valley and all that sort of stuff. So. But Stu, um, again, but Stu and, how did you get out of wine and into gin? What made you think, apart from brilliance and perceiving where the world would be going, what made you think that gin would work? Well, to be honest, it was nothing about where the world was going. It was God. I was being facetious hard. then. I was being facetious <laughs> when I said that. But go on. <laughs> we, a, there was a couple of motivating factors. One is that wine was just getting too hard for us. It was, mm. I mean, the climate, I don't realise the climate. The stuff. There were just too many wine brands on the market, and in fact, we were sitting drinking gin and tonics. The three of us from 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 Donny Goodmack, so me and Kate and, and Cameron, were actually drinking gin and tonic. We used to drink a lot of gin, and we actually thought, um, "Why is tonic so crap?" This is before the the tonic revolution, if you like. There is now Fever Tree and Strange Love and all these cool tonic brands. When we were, you know, fifteen years ago, there was only Schweppes tonic. It was literally the only product, and we thought. Maybe we should make tonics to make our gin and tonics better. And honestly, it was one day later when we realized we don't know how to make tonics. We know nothing about soft drinks and how to make that. But what about gin? You know, gin could be good. We could use all of, you know, some of our understanding of wine and flavor and botanicals, and we could probably make some spirits. Um, and that was pretty much where it came from. Four Pillars, the name just came essentially out of a, a, one of our similar drinking. We, we used to have a, a, a a, a hilarious drinking game where it was called the Four Pillars of Humanity. So we basically said, well, why don't we just call it Four Pillars? That sounds like a good name for a, for a gin brand. No real science or marketing research went into that. And then um, I said to Cameron, well, you know, you're going to have to make it. Mm. <laughs> so he, he got a glass he, he got a glass still, which he had to register with the local coppers because I think they thought he was making crystal meth for a while. <laughs> and... Um, he just started distilling and distilling and distilling individual botanicals and occasionally I would go down. So he was doing this, as I said, in Warren died on the edge of the Yarra. I was, um, by this stage, I was living back in Sydney and I would go down and we would taste all these individual components. But he's the, he's the one who 
designed and came up with the with the recipe of our original rare dry gin, which is still our most important and biggest selling gin. Mm. Um, and then, you know, we, it was like, well, are we going to do this as we did our wine brand, you know, which was a, a bit of fun on the side, or are we going to go in and do this properly? And we both agreed that we should do it properly. So we went to the, you know, we went to a lot of our mates and, 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 and took money from them, you know, in, in several mm. circumstances, unconscionably after a big day at the races. But we, you know, we, we have no shame. Um, and we, we got, you know, we, we remortgaged our own houses. We, you know, so we ended up raising, you know, close to a million bucks, which meant that we could do it properly. We could buy the proper still from Germany, from the, from the, from the still manufacturer we knew was the best in the world, but it was going to cost a couple hundred grand to get this still rather than get a cheap, you know, facsimile of it made in China or get someone to knock it up in the back of their shed in Tassie or something like that. Mm. So we knew we could, you know, we knew we could afford the best stills. We knew we could afford great you know, photography and design and ingredients. Um, and then, you know, and then we, we we launched that first couple of gins on Possible, you know, like an online, you know, like a, a crowdfunding site. And and when it sold out in three days, I, I still remember literally sitting in bed, you know, scrolling through the, the site and every 10 seconds another bottle had been sold. And I remember sitting there in bed one night going, God, you know, there's, there's a market for this, 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 this this could bloody work, um, and that was the end of 2013. And you know, seven years on, you know, we've reasonably well established now in the Australian market, and and um, I, I think we'll be pretty well established internationally, COVID COVID dependent over yeah. the next two or three years as well. Sue, obviously, marketing alcoholic products has been your strength. So, what do you think grabbed the attention of that? Um, the, the people who are on that site that meant that they were, it was going out the door at the rate of knots. What what marketing, you know, attention seeking thing did you do apart from the name? What else did you do to make people say, "Shit, we, we, we should buy this"? Well, I think you've got to do. I, I think you've got to tell a really credible story. I mean, I think in the um, what what we did is we. we we made it look really beautiful. We convinced people because, uh, to be perfectly honest, not a person in that first batch of uh, you know of four hundred and fifty bottles, no one had even ever tasted it, and that's what surprised us the most is that they were buying this mm. because either they trust they trusted the people behind it, and I think it was really important that we sold them a story that these two guys weren't just clowns who had never made a who 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 had come out of being um, you know in finance or in the in, in, you know working for a. a you know, working for the post office or anything else, but they've got a background in the booze industry. They know what they're doing. The packaging looked great. You know, we, we were able to sell them a story around, you know, using some native Aussie botanicals. Um, so, and then and then Matt Jones was able to make it all look beautiful and sound intelligent. Um, oh. And I think people, you know, ever since that day, that, that you know, back in 2013, we've, we've, made, we've done the same thing. The key to Four Pillars success is first and foremost, that the gin is really, really, really good. Uh, you know, all my marketing bullshit and all of all of our pretty um, posters and everything else don't matter anything if people taste the booze and don't like it. Mm. Um, and you know, we have not yet touched wood. Oh, maybe one. <laughs> I was about to say we've not yet made a dud gin. There is one gin back in our deep dark past that all of us are, you know, are questioning why we ever made it. But anyway, that 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 particular line no longer exists. Mm. But, um, you know, the, the gin has to be great. And each product, each, you know, SKU, as you'd call it, is, 
has to have a reason for being. You know, we, we, we don't just create gyms for the sake of trying to get an extra, you know, an incremental sale. Each gym, you know, whether it's a bloody Shiraz gym that's featured in Shiraz Grace or a Negroni gym that's intended to go into a Negroni, which is a really fast, fast-growing cocktail. You know, we, we're, 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 we, we never make decisions based on, oh, shit, we need to chase a sale or we need to chase a, a, a number. <clears throat> and then one of the great things about being an Aussie brand is you can, you can have a ripping good time while you're doing it, you know. Too many brands, I think this is one of my frustrations with wine, if we go back to that question about why did we leave wine and go into gin. Wine can sometimes be so up itself and mm. take itself so seriously. I never felt like I really fit in. Um, I would always be the one rolling my eyes at a fancy wine show dinner when the person went up and started, you know, pontificating about the, the, the terroir of this or the particular nuance of plum and rose me and all that sort of stuff. It just wasn't my jam. I just thought, you know, shit, that's just a fun, great drink. Let's yeah. get on with it. Yeah. And you can kind of do that a bit more in spirits than, than in wine. And, mm. and I think that's why I think, I think we fit in better in spirits than, than wine. I, if, you, if you just take a simple example, I mean, the, the, the cocktail bartender, you know, who's a young, loud, fun, shaking, tattooed, you know, bearded yeah, guy yeah. or yeah, girl. Yeah, you got him right. Yeah. But, versus the wine sommelier who's the stitched up tie, suit jacket, mm. formal, you know, clipped verbs, you know, clipped accent, all that sort of stuff. That's not my, that's not really, that wasn't really our scene. And I think, frankly, we probably pissed a few people off in wine because we used to take the piss a bit. Mm. And um, that's not to say that wine isn't great. I love, I, I, both Cameron and myself love wine as much as anything, but what we don't like is the pretense around it. There's yeah. a sense of formality, you know. Um, and gin gives us a, gives us much more um, freedom to do what the hell we want. Yeah. And Stu, you, you know the Yellowtail story. In many ways, it succeeded in America because they worked out that Americans were intimidated by the all the palaver that goes with French wine and whatever. Yeah, look, they were. And the Yellowtail guys, the Casella family, you know, I actually, back in the, the Liquid Ideas days, we did quite a bit of work with Yellowtail. And um, what they did is strip away that and make it really easy for people to understand wine. And they treated it in many ways a bit like you would a, um, for the Americans, a bit like you might, might a cocktail or a, or, a, or, a, or, a, or a vodka. You know, mm. they, they said, right, the, the, the bright yellow one is this, the bright blue one is this. You know, they probably did what Wolf Glass did in Australia in the 70s. You know, Wolf always used to say to me, you know, Make it simple, Stuart, not complicated, you know? The black label ones. The <laughs> was that, was ones, that the your German accent ones. then, was it? You've got to be careful when you're doing any sort of accent. Yeah. At the moment, but I, um, that was my wolf black. He, yeah. he was incredible in, in making what was complicated simple. You know, he just loved the mnemonic of colour. Mm. Red label's a cheap one, then the yellow label, then the grey label, then black label, and then platinum, mm. you know? Um, he used to, he based it, he always used to tell me he based it on Johnny Walker. Mm. You know, the red label was the cheap one and the black label was the fancy one. Mm. And that's what he decided to do in wine. And smart wine people um, have been doing that for, for many years. And um, that's not to say we don't love impossible to find, you know, left side of the hill, Pinot Noir. Yeah. But, um, but wine oftentimes is its own worst enemy because it overcomplicates everything. But it's just too bloody hard at yeah. the end of the day. I mean, I find it hard and I've been in it for 20 years I sometimes sit at wine lists at restaurants and the guys trying to explain stuff to me and by the end of his diatribe I'm like shit I'll just have a beer mate <laughs> <laughs> too much 
All right, so you, you started off, you know, promoting uh, this bar, which I didn't know anything about, uh, and it's really important that you do promote a local thing because you, you've told us that your external, your export market has been affected by the coronavirus. So what have you done locally that's going to, you know, help keep the, the, um, the till ticking over? Look, so in Surrey, so we're in Surrey Hills. So we've opened um, what we call the Four Pillars Laboratory in Surrey Hills. That's so a lab, basically, which means it's a, it's a retail store. Um, it's a lab where I'm sitting at the moment, where the, where one of our stills is. So one of our five stills is now being we put it in the back of the bus and drove it up from Hillsville mm. in, the, in the Yarra up to Sydney. And it's um, yeah, we're making a uh, we're making gin here. We're running little classes. I mean, they're called master classes, but I hate that term because mm. it makes it makes it sound like I'm a master which I'm clearly not. If anyone's ever sat through one of my classes, they know that I'm not a, a master of anything other than my own um, belief in my own awesomeness. Um, <laughs> but, um, which is something you've been stuck with your whole life, by the way. <laughs> what a burden, eh? Yeah. <laughs> but, um, and then we've got a beautiful bar called Eileen's Bar, which is just named after the, after the stills. So each of the stills is named after our mum, and Eileen is Matt's mum. Um, and Eileen's Bar is, a, is an incredible cocktail bar where you can come and have delicious drinks um, using all of the Four Pillars range. You can have, but, you know, you can also have a beer mm. and you can have a wine and you can have a jaffle or some anchovies or some cheese. Um, you know, we're not we're not trying to tell you that if you don't want our fancy gin cocktail, then you shouldn't be here. You want to sit here and have a tin of furphy and um, while you watch your friends have a fancy martini, then that's fine. Um, um, and it's a really beautiful bar. I mean, it's designed gorgeously. Um you know, we, we were too far down the track when COVID hit to stop. Um, you know, we, we'd been developing this site for, you know, over six months. So, you know, it, it, we were lucky that we were able to open when we when we did. And, um, yeah, it's a great spot. So, I mean, if anyone wants to have a look at it, it's the Four Pillars Lab. So if they just want to go onto the Four Pillars Gym website or they just, you know, the Instagram machine or Facebook, you know, you, you'll be able to find it pretty easily, the Four Pillars Lab on Crown Street. And we're right next to the Dolphins. So, you know, we're in a great little part mm, of Surrey Hill. So the Dolphins. Yeah. The Dolphins next door, Bills is across the road. Um, you know, our Tarvel is just down the down the street. Um, we're right on Crown Street, next. You know, where the um, right near the the Adam Goods mural. So you know, we love Goodsy. So it's a, it's a really exciting part of town. And we're not we're now starting to see just in the last couple of weeks, we're starting to see people coming back, which is great. You know, everyone's got to be you know, the, the COVID protocols have to be continued, but. Mm. Um, Good to see people back out supporting hospitality venues. You, you, you need a whole lot of pizza boxes. Apparently, three pizza boxes equals social distancing, Stu, just in case you didn't know. Small, medium, large, or family size? <laughs> yeah, I asked that question as well. I look like medium to me <laughs> the, the first time I saw it. Now, by the way, I, I had a whole pile of questions my producer told me to, to ask. I haven't asked any of them, but I do think <laughs> we've, we have cut through and got the, the core of what you've done in a spectacular way to create not only just a, a great Australian business, you've become an exporter and exporting is fantastic for the economy, fantastic for job creation. And I would never, ever have thought that you could have been of any use to the economy or anyone <laughs> in the economy when I taught you way back in a, a, a Sydney Grammar School when you were 15, but you really surprised me. And it's a great <laughs> surprise to have you as good as you are today. <laughs> Thanks, Wits. I mean, if, no, no matter how bad I was at economics, I was worse 
as a fullback when you put me in that out of position <laughs> in, in 1985. Oh, no. But we won't go there. No, I know. That was one of my worst footballing coaching decisions ever. And the next year, what, you won the GPS 100 and yeah. what played what GPS 1s yeah. or 2s on the wing? Yeah, stick me on the wing, mate. That's where I was good. You know, I can run in a straight line. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Catching fast. Yeah, I also th- I also think Mike Cady was a better coach than Peter Switzer. All right, all right, buddy. Thanks for joining us on the show. Hey, thanks, really appreciate it. And that was Stu Gregor. As you can see, I've had a long history with Stu, and he has actually done a fantastic uh, job in building a great business. Um, a credit to himself, and I'm really happy to have been associated with it. Well, this time now for one of our ads, and uh, John Bragg tells me I should be pushing the book, Join the Rich Club at $24.95 plus postage and handling. I think the, um, the little line on the front actually says it all. I've been rich, I've been poor, rich is better. And uh, all you have to do is work at it. Stuart Gregor worked on it, and now he's got rich. I think the bottom line is if you really want to do something, you've got to be focused. And if you need a bit of help, a book like mine or other books out there would be the way to do it. So that's $24.95. Join the Rich Club by Peter Switzer and you go to switzerstore.com.au. Well, as you know, I do like to catch up with people in an industry to see what's going on. And I caught up with M Squared Capital's Paul Mirren to see what's going on in the property sector. And uh, it looks like it's heading the right direction. Paul had a surprising uh, observation. He asked the question, Recession? What recession? Now, you've written a piece um, for your clients, your newsletter, and uh, you basically pose the question, recession, what recession? Absolutely. What have you been smoking, mate? (laughs) Uh, Look, we have a lot of different type of investors, and one of the most common uh, conversations that I have with some of our investors is Hmm. saying, when I was your age, Um, and we were going through the last time we had a recession in Australia 30 years ago. My interest rate was 18%. I was having two jobs. Unemployment was 10%. There was no job keeper. There was no job seeker. There was no uh, repayment holiday. If I missed the payment, I would lose my property. Um, So um, Unemployment went over 11%. Yeah, yeah, and and that happened gradually. Mm. And while you were living through the recession, you didn't really see... Um, you know, it, it was quite pessimistic mm. uh, and the mood was very different than it is right now. Yeah. So even though we're going through a health crisis, people are a bit more optimistic that once, this, once we get over this, yeah. uh, we should be getting back to normal pretty quickly. Okay. Now, you're in the property sector, but you're, you're also lending to people in business. And I know you've got a, a preoccupation, <laughs> like an infatuation with zombie companies. Yeah. So tell people yeah. what you mean by zombie companies and why is this an important issue for you? Look, we've been on your show um, four or five months ago yeah. and we actually discussed the, the, the difficulty or risk that we saw in the market lending to businesses that actually weren't profitable. Mm. Now, recently, they've used this terminology of zombie companies, and I've used it in an article as well. Yeah. Zombie, a zombie company is basically a company that's not profitable, mm. and it continues to be in existence by having more debt. Mm. And as debt got cheaper and cheaper, these companies are getting more debt. Mm. And these zombie companies are your small businesses, mm. and they're large businesses. Mm. They can be an airline as well. Yeah, well, well Virgin certainly yeah. was a dead airline walking there, wasn't it, until yeah. the recent takeover. So. Let's just talk then about you know, why are zombie companies, companies really important to you? Just for, for people who think, 
Well, these guys yeah. are in the property space. What's the link between a, a, a zombie company and what you guys do? So even though we're a direct lender, yeah. and, and so therefore what a direct lender is, or we're a direct lender that will only lend money if we have a secured position against mm -hmm. a property. Yeah. So what does that actually mean? So if someone comes to us and says, look, I want to borrow from my business, but um, I have no security, we're out. We're not unsecured. Mm -hmm. But if they come to us and say, look, we want to borrow for our business and we have some security, mm. we're more than happy to assist as long as it makes logical sense. Mm. Now, we're not in the business of selling people's assets. Mm. So just having the, the property as security mm. and ticking that box is also not sufficient for us. Mm. We're, not, we're not in the business of selling other people's assets. Mm. We want to make sure that the people who borrow from us are, have successful businesses and they can grow mm. and there's commercial benefit. So when we look at a particular scenario as well, we say, what is the property? Do they have cash flow? Mm. And if they don't have cash flow, mm. we know that this, this is yeah. going to be a, a problem. Yeah. We look at character, mm. make sure they'll make the right decisions, they have competency. So we have a process to make sure that yeah. what we, people who we lend to, there's the highest level of success. But there's a backstop in the sense that you, you do get them to put up their residential property, which is good quality asset yeah. to be behind a, a loan of any kind. Absolutely. So for an investor, mm. knowing when they invest through our fund, they have the peace of mind knowing at night that even if a business for any reason mm. are, are unable to have the cash flow to support the mortgage payments, mm. they will make the decision themselves to put that property on the market and pay us back. Mm. But if, if an unlikely situation that we have to recover, mm. they know that they have a this, the property market has to fall more than 30% for them to actually lose the capital and interest. Yeah. And that, uh, that's why I wanted to lead you to that, because um, if this property market, you know, the recession mm. should have led to you know, a, lot, uh, a lot of people's thinking, it should have led to a, a substantial fall in house prices, and if your security is the value of a house, yeah. you, you potentially could have been at risk. What are you seeing for house prices at the moment? Well, you'd be it, watching them. We're watching it very, very closely. Mm. What I think uh, generally the consensus of the market is at the moment, uh, I think everyone is quite surprised in relation to how resilient property, property prices are. Mm. So, as, we, uh, as we discussed last time we were on the show as well, mm. it was 0.5% uh, nationally the capital values have fallen. Mm. The figures came out last, mo uh, last month as well. There was only, it was less than half a percent uh, mm. for that particular month. So for property prices are very, very resilient, but we're not to say that it, may, that it will continue to fall over time mm. until, until uh, the economy is back on its feet, mm. until we get out of, you know, obviously, obviously we don't know the, the, the true essence of this is that we don't know the true damage of the economy at the moment because we've got job seeker, we've got job seeker, uh, job, job keeper. keeper. Mm. Um, uh, we don't know how many zombie companies are out there. Mm. So we see zombie companies all the time, you, but you we don't lend to them. You love zombie companies. Yeah, well. <laughs> but yeah. Um, we don't know the extent of them. And yeah. so the, the multiply effect of these zombie companies not being able mm. to employ um, their staff um, going forward, there will be an adjustment period. But you must have been happy when you heard the IMF tip our contraction would be at 4.5%. 4, 4, 4, yeah. The second lowest contraction in the world beyond South Korea. That's yeah. a good thing. And also, we expected to rebound four percent. Of course, they're guessing, yeah. but at least the guessing is all looking favourable for us, and it therefore justifies what you're saying. Recession, yeah. what recession? When you compare it to, to the '90s, um, people watching this would be thinking: um, Do you think that 
the outlook for this market, and I've, I've asked other people in this program, um, when we come into the spring, if we do see the economy doing okay without mm. JobKeeper and without an elevated value of JobSeeker, that there'll be a lot more pro properties put on the market and the market will be healthier than it is now? Well, what we're seeing already the last two or three months, the, there's a bit more confidence. So mm. therefore, during the lockdown, we had, I think the, the amount of pro properties in Sydney that were at auction were about 250, 300. Yeah. Now it's actually ticking up uh, in the you know, mid 500s, mm. but the clearance rates are still staying around between 60 and 70%. Right. That sort of shows that there is a the healthy mechanics of the property market. What, uh, what we need to acknowledge as well is that what we had in Sydney and Melbourne, we, more particularly, overnight we had an undersupply in property, mm. and then the day that we had the lockdowns, we had an oversupply. Mm. And let me explain the mechanics there. Is that we had, in Sydney, we had 127,000 apartments that were permanent Airbnb apartments mm. that went on the permanent mar rental market. Mm. We had nearly half a million students. Now, I don't know how many of them have gone back overseas mm. uh, or stayed here. We, we don't have tourists at the moment. Mm. So we have all of this property infrastructure that are designed for student temporary visas um, that now are being absorbed for per permanent market. Mm. Um, so I think that we will still see a bit of a, a decline. I, don't, mm. I can't see the uptick. Mm. Um, there is more confidence in selling your property at the moment. Um, but what I want to see is also how uh, those students are going to come back to, mm. to Sydney, Melbourne and, mm. and uh, the rest of the states it, as It's well. like a temporary structural change. I, I, I do know, and you might have the same information, that in some tourist areas where properties were not being rented Airbnb, yeah. they've now been booked out night <laughs> after night. So there's going to be a lot of internal travel that will probably help a lot of Airbnb, but you're right, it seems like there will be an oversupply of rental properties and therefore rents will be down and prices should go with it. And it might be a little bit of an adjustment, yeah. but then you have to look at the difference between investment stock and an occupier. So from a coalface perspective, mm. when talking to uh, people on a daily basis, mm. they're saying that they still can't find an unoccupied property. Mm. So if, they, if you're in the market to buy your own personal house, yeah. and, and that's, that's a space you guys play in? The, the, the Look, pro the, the uh, primarily the, the security is residential property? Well, we, we, it, it could be any type of property as long yeah. as it's non-specialised. Yeah. So what we really avoid is specialised security. So mm. uh, the reason being is that when you have a bit of an adjustment in the property mm. market, um, that's where you can have the largest capital uh, depreciation of asset. Mm. So we, we stay away from it. So mm. majority of our um, transactions are secured by residential property, but we, can, we do industrial as well, yeah. um, uh, commercial property. But where the, the difference between us and probably other funds as well um, is that people can actually choose the security that they want to invest in. Mm. So there's a particular borrower, there's a set of cash flows, we've done all the due diligence. Mm. And so therefore the investor can hop in the car, depending which state they're in, mm. and they can actually go to the property and see it. Say, well, you know what, I've lent, I put $100,000 towards this particular investment, mm. and I know that property is worth a million dollars, and the boys have not lent more than $600,000 against that asset. Yeah. So that gives people a lot of security, peace of mind. They know they're getting the regular income every mm. single month. Mm. Um, and um, we've had our phone ringing more in the last, uh, last month mm. than the last two years in relation to investors wishing to get more information mm. and invest in these type of assets as well. And, and Paul, the, the interest rates you guys pay, despite the fact you try to build in safety factors, 
is high compared to term deposits. Therefore, yeah. you're not as safe. That yeah. you guys try your best to be as safe as you can be, despite sure. the fact you're not government guaranteed. That that that's right. Mm. So, irrespective of the government guarantee, mm. and mind you, if you have more than two hundred fifty thousand dollars, you're not more or less yeah. exposed. Mm. But uh, yeah, uh, the investors know that they have specific security against a particular asset, mm. um, and our returns start from about six percent. Mm. Um, and you know there are different type of transactions depending on gearing and, and risk profile. You know we have different type of transactions, different terms uh, to meet people's requirements. And are there any examples that you've come across recently which basically explain to people listening now what the, the property market looks like to you? Uh, yeah, well, look, we, we've, we've, got a, we've got a little, um, we've just set, we settled a couple of transactions the last two or three months. We're looking at a couple of new ones at the moment. Um, we're looking a little at, at a little shopping centre at the moment, mm. secured by an IGA 15-year lease. Mm. Um, we're going to be lending 65% against that particular asset mm. and giving roughly around 6.5% to 7% net return. Mm. So. For, for investors, it's, um, it's, it's, a, it's a great asset because mm. they know that, that uh, it's COVID-19 proven, has a good track record mm. there, especially given through. They've never not uh, stopped paying the, the uh, mm. lease over that period of time. Yeah. And investors know that they can, um, they'll have their regular payments every single month from that investment. So okay, good. Thanks very much for coming to the program. No problem. Thank you. Well, that's the show for this week. I hope you enjoyed the interview with Stu Gregor. I, I love it when uh, Australians really think outside the square and come up with fantastic business ideas. It's even particularly special for me when it's someone I've known for a long, long time. Quentin time! Quentin time! <laughs>